Hello, welcome back to another episode of the Code 321 Podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the flight orientation process and five lessons that I learned throughout that 12-week program that I wish that I knew in week one. So for those of you that aren't familiar, when you enter a new job in the medical field, a lot of times you go through this like probationary period. It's no different when you get into a flight program. Basically, the first 12 weeks that you're there, they're just trying to see if you're going to hack it. They're trying to see if you have the skill set to be a comfortable critical care provider, kind of like a probationary period that you might have in a fire department. So as I was going through this, there was a lot of learning that happened and there was a lot of failures that I had the opportunity to overcome and learn from. And I kind of came up with five lessons that I think, you know, I ended my orientation with that really have impacted my practice moving forward. And I also think it's um, something that you can really like apply to your day-to-day life too. So you don't, you don't have to be going through a flight orientation or a critical care orientation to take away something from these lessons. Uh, But I think it was like pretty impactful to me. And I can't take credit that, you know, I didn't come up with every single one of these. A lot of a lot of these are kind of well known in the industry. Um, but like I said, they're pretty impactful to me. So I just want to go through them and see if if uh, anybody can relate to them, just like I did. So the first one is complete each task before starting a new one. And what we mean by that is this idea that it's really easy to get distracted from the tasks that you're currently working on. So you get to the bedside and you're dealing with these really sick patients. There's a couple things that usually happen pretty soon after coming into the room. One of the providers is going to go over to the patient and they're going to start putting the patient on the monitor. They're going to take a look at their vital signs, maybe take a peek at what's going on with their infusions and interventions to make sure that you know there's no like serious life threats. The person that we call the primary is going to be talking with the sending provider, the nurse, the other staff that's on site, or the EMS crews if it's a scene call. And they're really looking to get that patient pass on the report to kind of see what's going on with the patient. So for the secondary role, that person that's doing those hands-on tasks, the vitals and the drips and the medicines and the infusions and the interventions, all those pieces of it for me started to swirl together because it was so easy for me to get distracted and see like a shiny object and want to go to the next thing. So I'd walk in and I would take the monitor and I would put the chest leads on and then I would put the blood pressure on. And then all of a sudden the pump would alarm on the other side of the bed. And I found myself getting pulled and sucked into going to that other side of the bed and trying to fiddle around with that and figure out, oh, why is it not infusing? Oh, why is there air in the line? And before you know it, we're ready to bring the patient out to the helicopter and I never put the SpO2 on. So we have no idea how well this patient's oxygenating or I didn't attach the end tidal caponometry or even worse, I took it out of the bag and I was getting ready to put it on the patient and I left it on the bed, the hospital stretcher in the room and now we don't have it when we need it. So a way you can kind of avoid getting sucked into those types of problems is you can actually just do the task from start to finish. If you do the task from start to finish and then move to the next thing systematically, you're much less likely to forget things. And most of the time, um, that muscle memory will kick in. The minute that you alter your care plan from the muscle memory, uh, like prime recognition decision making that you've done in the past, you set yourself up for failure because your brain doesn't recognize the pathway. 
they don't it doesn't have the ability to go back um, and draw from those similar experiences because this experience is different because you're doing something different than what you've done before. So that was like a, a game changer for me once I started doing that kind of thing at the bedside. The next lesson that I learned that I thought was really helpful to me personally was this idea of sorting priorities into now, later, and optional. So there are some things that you have to do immediately, right? If you walk into that patient and they are not oxygenating properly, they're not able to, you know, get get a good blood pressure or maybe they're 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 choking on their ET tube because they're under sedated. Those are all things that you need to intervene on immediately. You really don't have discretionary time to wait and those should be at the top of your list. Generally, we consider those things to be um, when they impact oxygenation, ventilation, or perfusion, meaning the movement of blood around the body, uh, bringing the oxygenated blood to the tissues and the end organs. The next category would be things that you need to accomplish, but they can be accomplished later. So a good example of this would be antibiotics. Antibiotics are truly a life-saving intervention, but an antibiotic can be delayed for a few minutes here and there without huge impact to the patient. Whereas if you delay airway management for a few minutes here and there, you can actually cause brain death. So making sure that we have the right priorities in the right order is really key. And the last category is things that are optional. So things that you'd like to get to, uh, maybe the, you know, the IV lines aren't as neat as you'd like them, or maybe you want to label your IV lines um, at both the pump and at the hub. You can still effectively manage your oxygenation, ventilation, and perfusion challenges with these patients without having truly labeled lines. But yeah, it's the gold standard to make sure everything's neat and tidy and looks professional. Um, but that, that should be an optional thing if you have time left over. Number three is take a short time out before you leave the bedside to summarize and clarify your plan. So what I mean by that is a lot of times when we work on these calls, especially when you're working on orientation and there's three of you doing uh, patient care, a lot of those, those people you're working with are really, really intelligent and they all have an idea of what the priority is. And sometimes that plan can be just slightly different. And so before you leave the bedside, a helpful thing to do is just take like 10 or 15 seconds, sometimes 30 seconds, and just walk through a brief summary of what the patient is, what interventions have been completed by you at the bedside, and then what you plan to do in route. Because sometimes what you find is you're like, hey, I'm going to give uh, 25 mics of fentanyl. And your partner's like, oh, yeah, cool. Um, I was going to give uh, 50. And now you can just, you can kind of clarify what the expectation is and make sure that you're on the same page. So that when they're giving their radio report or their patient handoff, your medication dosages are accurate. That's like just a simple low-hanging fruit to make sure everybody's on the same page and you don't miss anything. Something that gets really commonly missed that is super important is DNR, DNI status. So do not resuscitate and do not intubate status because if you if you kind of glance over that, you load them in the helicopter, you're in flight and all of a sudden something goes sideways and you start intubating the patient without that information, you can set yourself up um, for kind of a... A legal problem. So it's great to just make sure that you have the information you need before you leave the bedside because the helicopter is a little different. It's not like you can just pick up the phone and request that information. Flight times are short. Um, our phones are on airplane mode. And most of the time, you know, that's not something that we're going to be conducting over radio. It's just not feasible. So making sure that before you leave the safety of that bedside, you want to make sure you're comfortable with what the plan is, you understand what your partner's done, and then they have a good understanding of um, your expectations of what you're looking for in terms of the patient care for the remainder of the transport.
you've probably heard of the expression, hope for the best and prepare for the worst. So number four is assume that the situation will deteriorate and prepare your contingencies ahead of time. So we don't want to wait until the patient's blood pressure is 40 over 35 before we give somebody push dose pressor. We want to make sure that if we're trending that way or there's a potential that that's going to happen, we should already have those interventions prepped, right? One of a, a, a good example would be um, for patients who have a severe cardiac problem like a, like a ST elevated myocardial infarction or some sort of cardiac arrhythmia when we're seeing act to be on the monitor and there's a risk that they might have a lethal arrhythmia or dysrhythmia, we're going to have that patient with the AED pads on already. Because when you load them in the back of that aircraft, there's not a lot of room to maneuver around. You know, it's not like a hospital room where you can just get up and walk to the other side of the bed or walk out in the hall and get what you need. You want to make sure that everything's available to you um, ahead of time. So a classic example um, is throwing those pads on because not only can you use those pads for defibrillation and pacing, um, but you can also use them as a additional viewpoint that reduces artifact to grab your uh, your two lead views, which is really helpful. Um, that was a tip I learned from one of our flight nurses that when you're bouncing around in the back of the helicopter, sometimes those small little sticky EKG stickers uh, produce a lot of artifact and it can make it difficult to read the rhythm um, and the monitor gets really confused. But if you switch to those big, huge fat AED pads, for some reason, they tend to produce a little bit less artifact and you can actually toggle to that view and pull your two lead waveform tracing of your cardiac electroactivity right through that, uh, that pad, which is really helpful. So just good to have those options and then be ahead of the game in case you need to use those things. So um, great points is make sure that you have what you need before you need it, or you at least at a minimum have a plan and the ability to overcome whatever problem might happen to in flight, especially if it's a critical problem. The more critical the problem, the more aggressively you need to prepare for the solution. The last bullet point on this list for the purposes of this podcast episode is a naturalistic decision will always be faster than a classical approach. So this idea of the classical method of problem solving versus the naturalistic method of problem solving actually comes from a command and control book that I was um, required to read for a promotional exam at my last job. And basically, in, in kind of like the down and dirty terms, the classical method is really time-consuming process when you don't have experience dealing with that particular problem. This would be uh, more similar to like a scientific method where you have no idea what the result is going to be and you have to go through a systematic process to determine what the correct or best uh, likely answer is going to be. So you would basically gather information, analyze that information, determine what problems are present and think about what solutions might be. And then you're going to select tactics to accomplish those solutions. And then you're going to make sure that those, um, those tactics are delivered. So for example, a naturalistic method is usually what they're looking for when they are asking uh, flight providers and critical care providers like nurses and paramedics to have three to five years of experience prior to starting the orientation process because they're hoping that you have previous experience dealing with most issues, right? There's going to be some things you've never encountered before and they're understandable about that. And that's why they never put two newer providers together. They want to give you that support system where someone else on your crew has probably seen that before. But a naturalistic approach would be 
you know, if I need to cardiovert someone, hopefully the first time I'm doing that or the first time I recognize is not going to be, you know, during my flight orientation that that's already been completed ahead of time. Um, and those naturalistic uh, problem solving methods are basically um, you get a cue, right? So something is going to peak your uh, previous history inside your head. You're going to you're going to see something that triggers a memory and then you're going to remember that that problem was solved in a way uh, that was successful before. And then you're basically going to repeat that process and hope for the same outcome. And if it doesn't happen, you might end up in classical approach, but most of the time naturalistic is going to be uh, an effective function. And that's basically like instinct, right? So this is like, if you summarized everything, boiled it all down just to the final simple syrup, it's that natural naturalistic method is basically experience-based decision-making classical method is when you don't have any experience to pull from and you're forced to go out and do research in real time to try to solve that problem. So let me give you a quick scenario about like um, how I ran into this. So in the paramedic world in 911, one of the things that we do is we give normal saline, we flush our lines with normal saline flushes. And a lot of the times the meds that we're giving are push dose meds, right? So we're going to be giving you know, 25 or 50 or 100 micrograms of fentanyl, and then we're going to flush that line with a, with a saline flush. And there's not a lot of complicated, prolonged processes to that, right? They have a broken ankle, you show up, you give them a dose of pain meds, you flush it, lock the line, get them in the truck, drive them to the hospital, no problem. When I started doing uh, more of this critical care work, and we started going in and out of the ICUs and some other, you know, emergency department to emergency department, some of these patients have really complicated uh, medical care plans that are already halfway in progress and you have to integrate within that system and compatibility errors are uh, was a big challenge for me. So thinking about what medicines can go into what other medicines. So if you have a medicine that they're receiving, right? So like a, like a Zosin or a vancomycin or some sort of antibiotic or um, octreotide, thinking about if you're going to now add a new medicine to that IV line, you have to do some research to figure out if those two medicines are going to behave together and if they're going to cause any um, alternative effects. And that process takes time if you're not familiar with those interactions. So the first time I ever treated a patient and they were on propofol and I needed to give them a little norepinephrine, which is pretty standard, it took me some time to go into our hospital um, incompatibility chart and look up those two medicines to determine if there was going to be an adverse effect. And there wasn't. Now that I've given those two medicines in the same IV line, I can take that and move it from the classical method on the, that side of my brain and I can put it into a naturalistic method because I know I've already done the research and the legwork to determine that those two meds are going to behave um, appropriately together. So I don't have to look that up in the future. Every time I add or subtract a new med, I have to go through that classical process. But once I've done that and it's safe and I've, and I've done that research, I don't need to reinvent the wheel every time. And I can go to that set of plays in my playbook that I know work, that I've already done the research to approve. And that's essentially what guidelines and protocols are, are written for us to help you um, do have a little less of a cognitive load when you're working with these patients because that work has already been done. So what I'm getting at with this bullet point is that if you have a naturalistic method in your head about something that you know is going to work because you've done it before, if it's going to be effective and create the outcome you're looking for, 
that will always be faster and safer than a classical approach because you are uh, needlessly multiplying entities, right? So this is Occam's razor. Sometimes the simplest solution is going to be the most effective solution. And if you actually do a little research on this um, concept of Occam's razor, it's pretty interesting because um, if you dig way down and look at William of Occam, he actually said that you should not needlessly multiply entities. That was the original statement. And it kind of got put in the washing machine over the last several hundred years and um, turned out, you know, into a more simple, you know, the simplest solution is the best solution. But ultimately, Every time you eliminate a factor, you're creating just a slightly safer environment for that patient. Another good example of this that one of the really good flight nurses told me about is, um, for example, if you're giving a medicine and it says that it needs to be administered over two minutes, right, 120 seconds, you could put that medicine in a syringe and you could slowly push that syringe through the lock while watching the clock over two minutes, or you could put that medicine in a, um, you know, in a in a syringe pump and a half set into one of your uh, med pumps, and you could program. Okay, I want twenty five mLs over one hundred and twenty seconds or over two minutes. If you make a mistake with pump programming, that pump may do something that you don't want it to do because you've added an entity, you've added an additional factor because now you're asking a machine and equipment to now do something that you could have done with your hand. So. I'm not saying there is a right or wrong answer here. I'm just saying that, you know, with more factors involved in the solving the problem, the the more potential there is for one of those factors to fail, therefore creating a negative outcome. So sometimes in flight, a simple, effective solution that you know works that you've done before may be the best choice, especially if there's a lot of competing priorities. I hope those made sense and that you felt like they were pretty applicable to your practice, whatever that is. And it, it doesn't have to be in the medical field or in uh, emergency services. Hopefully you can take away some pieces from uh, my experience learning and reinforcing those lessons. I also think that it's really healthy to reset and go through an orientation or probationary process, you know, every once in a while. You can get pretty comfortable um, especially if you're not uh, going and challenging yourself and, and climbing to a different altitude and doing something different. So it was really therapeutic for me and really good for my practice and my mind to kind of start at a new organization and go through this orientation process again. It helps kind of tighten up your thought process and expand that toolbox, the, that uh, list of ideas you have about how to solve problems every time you change your environment you're basically diversifying that ecosphere in your head of how you're going to make things work. So it's really good for me. Hopefully you can take um, some of these lessons away with you. And I, I always think to myself, you know, I wish I had these five things taught to me in the beginning. It would have saved me a ton of time and energy. And I go back and forth because maybe that's part of the process. You know, maybe that's part of the learning process is developing these lessons through experience. But if you can take away... Um, some things. Just remember, you know, that um, the naturalistic method is always going to be faster than the classical method. Remember that um, you should assume that the situation will deteriorate. Prepare your contingencies ahead of time. Make sure that you take a short time out before you leave the bedside so you can summarize and clarify your plan. 
set priorities into now, later, and optional so that you're treating the appropriate things in the appropriate order. And then just simple things like make sure that each task is complete before you start a new one because the likelihood that you're going to be able to remember to stop and go back and complete something separate it's going to be relatively low. It's just a, it's just a complicated system with a lot of competing priorities, and it's much better if you work through it in a systematic process. Well, that's all I have for you today. I appreciate you listening. Hopefully you took something away from that, and we will see you next month for another episode of the Code 321 podcast. Thanks for listening.